Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Would you turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the long-awaited chapter 14. Some of you thought that you would not live long enough for us to get to this chapter. But we have made it. Beginning the journey in January of 1997, we are now in chapter 14. <laughs> oh me, somebody says you're going to finish this before you leave. I don't, I, I don't think I can live that long to finish this thing. Chapter 15 has 50 some verses in it. Can you imagine if you did two messages per verse? Well today we're going to be talking about the problem at Corinth. You know, the day we live in is not today, is not much different than it was at Corinth. We live in a time when performance, ability, experience, these are words that dominate our spiritual vocabulary. If someone has the ability with the greatest or most eloquence of speaking, we, they must be spiritual. That's just the way we look at it in society today. And I'll tell you what, some people can do it in such a way that makes me want to go drive a truck. But you just think if, if somebody can really speak with eloquence, that's got to be of God. If someone has great knowledge and is, is, is intellectual beyond anything you've ever experienced, that person must be in touch with God. Or if a person is gifted in speaking in other languages, we think, man, that person is truly gifted of God. And perhaps they are. But all these wonderful things are nothing if that person does not have love wrapped around everything that he does. And it's as clear as clear can be in the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Paul beautifully changed the focus from the gift to the giver in chapter 13. Now he circled this tree several times in chapter 12. But in chapter 13 it's clear as a bell. Listen to the first three words of chapter 13. Now, I know we're in chapter 14, but I'm, catching, I'm warming you up. We'll get there in a minute. It's chapter 13, verse 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. In other words, if that love is not in me when I speak, or when I, when I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, then I'm nothing more than an irritating noise. Well, that'll, that'll take the pride out of it real quick. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And that word nothing in the Greek is a zero with the lid kicked off. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, now this has got to be spiritual. And if I deliver my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. 
Now, they'll benefit from it because they'll be fed if I give my, my food to them or whatever, but I won't profit from it. I won't profit now in the joy of the fullness of Christ in my, in my everyday life, and I won't profit then when I stand before God one day and our works are tested. Because if the love is not there, it's obvious I did it in my power. I didn't do it in the energy and the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Now this love that Paul is talking about is the love of God himself that's produced in the life of every believer. It's got to be contrasted with love that we come up with, which is conditional. This is God's love, in the indisputable proof of a surrendered life that's produced through a believer. Galatians 5, 22, verse 20 and 23 says, The fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of my flesh, but the fruit that is produced by the Spirit of God is this love. Flesh can fake all of the gifts. You name them, it can fake them in preaching, in understanding, etc. But it cannot fake the fruit. The fruit has to be there. So therefore we have got to be attached to the giver. And what was happening in Corinth was they were being attached to the gift, not the giver. And that was caught, that wrong focus had turned them upside down and, and brought great distortion to the body of Christ. Well, this love that is in us that Paul says in chapter 13 is a love that will never fail. And the word that he has for the Corinthian church is, is an encouraging word. He's trying to tell them, guys, the love that he starts here, he's going to finish over here. He's going to get you to where he told you you were headed. You're going to get to the day that you're going to be glorified one day. He uses the term of love never fails in verse 8 to, of a ship that gets off course and shipwrecks. And he says, God's love is never going to get you off course. It's going to get you to where you're headed. Now, the journey from here to here may be painful if you don't attach yourself to Christ, but you're going to get there. Now, I'll tell you what, that's an encouraging word. Love never fails to get the ship to, to its destin destination, the point that it's headed towards. He says, for one day will come that we'll see him face to face and we will know as we have been known. And I'll tell you what, that blew me away. And I, uh, last week, several of you shared it blew you away too. The fact that I'll not know everything God knows. But down here, I'm seeking to mature. As Paul told him, as I was a child, I thought as a child. And, but when I became a man, I put these things away. We go through times of maturity in our life. And that's what Paul's trying to get the Corinthian church to understand. That this pursuit, this endless pursuit of, of emotional experiences, all these different uh, flamboyant gifts, that was not the, the thing. They're to pursue Christ. And as they pursue him and attach to him, then the love that he's already given to them will bring them from maturity to maturity to maturity. But one day, one day, one day, it'll ultimately be the full maturity that he already has destined us for. We will know as we're known. We are fully known by God right now. And therefore fully loved God has a perfect love and a perfect understanding of us. But one day, we'll have a perfect understanding of Him and therefore have a perfect love for Him. And our will and His will will finally be one forever we'll walk in total harmony with Him. And that's what we're headed toward. And God's love is going to get us there. But Corinthians, will you listen to us, Paul says? Will you just surrender to Christ? The journey's a lot more pleasant if you'll just live attached to Him. That's the essence of the message Paul has. To the Corinthian church. Well, today we enter, like I said, that long-awaited chapter 14. In this chapter, Paul now shifts gears again. He's gone from the distortion of the gifts in chapter 12. 
to the fruit that can only be there when you surrender to Christ. And now he comes back to chapter 14 and it's got to be seen as a unit. Just like 8, 9, and 10 are seen as a unit in 1 Corinthians, so is 12 through 13 and 14 of 1 Corinthians. He's going to deal with the problem that's at Corinth. And the problem is this, very clearly in 1 Corinthians 14, they were speaking in an unknown gibberish which was not a language that was understandable by anybody and they were saying this was of the Holy Spirit of God. And this was their problem. Now he's alluded to this already. Go back to chapter 12 and let's make sure we understand the flow of context. He, brought, he brings it up immediately, then tails away from it, and then comes back and fully focuses on it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 2, notice what he does here. He says, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the dumb idols. However, you were led. Now, Paul singles out only one of the pagan influences these people had had back when, before they came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that wasn't all that hindered them before they came to know Christ. He singles out idolatry. But what else was it they were dealing with? Look in chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. Let's make sure we understand now what's going on. There were several things that, that had influenced their pagan past. He only singles out one of them in chapter 12, which tells you everything about where he's headed. In chapter 6, verse 9, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? I'm glad God wrote this, aren't you? You don't have to apologize for it. That's what he said. He says, do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate. And remember, I taught you that effeminate does not mean somebody who does not deer hunt, own a pickup truck, and chew tobacco. That is not what it's talking about. <laughs> I'm going to let you look up the definition. I told you to do that before. I'm not going to say it in a mixed audience, but it doesn't mean that, okay? Nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. But look at verse 11. And such were what? Some of you. Now, if you want to see what it was that, that influenced their pagan past, he just gave you a list. And out of the list of immorality, covetousness, thievery, drunkenness, and on and on, he only singles one sin, one area that influenced them in their pagan past. Now, you have got to look at that. When you observe Scripture, why did he not bring out the whole list? No, no, he's headed somewhere with this. Why did he bring out idolatry? Now, here is where history has to factor in to your understanding of Scripture. History and culture. And if you don't factor it in, you're going to miss what Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, or actually 12 through 14. What's going on in Corinth? It's funny how we'll do that in Daniel 11. Did you know that? You, you can't interpret Daniel 11 without history and culture. As a matter of fact, we'll use history and the culture of the times to interpret the seven churches of the, that was written to in the book of the Revelation. We'll use history and culture everywhere else, but we don't want to factor it in in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14. And I'll tell you why. Because it absolutely pops the balloon that everybody's trying to push as being spiritual in these days. What was going on in Corinth? Why did he bring out the idolatry and how they were led, passive voice, to the pagan idols of that day? 30 miles from the city of Corinth, not the city of Ephesus, not the city of Philippi, not the city of Athens, 30 miles from the city of Corinth. This is the only city in the history and culture of that time that had to deal with this head on. Were what they call the oracles of Delphi. 
Now, what is an oracle? An oracle is a woman prophetess, if there's such a thing. A woman prophetess, self-proclaimed. And she could get in touch with the divine in the pagan world. That's what, that's what she said she was doing. And an oracle of Delphi. Delphi was a city. And inside of Delphi was a temple, the temple of Apollo, by the way, which was the main temple in downtown Corinth. And in that temple, they had what they call the inner sanctum, and I guess that would be their pagan understanding of what would be holy to them, which would, to us would be disgraceful. But they had a, a tripod there. They had a huge chasm that this tripod was set over, like a pit. And this woman would drink herbs, these kind of herbs. It would put her into an emotional frenzy. It was almost like taking drugs. And when she would get to a certain point, she could not have any intelligent thought in her brain at all when she went into this trance, like me and Haywood right now. And she had to sit, she sat cross-legged on that tripod. And as she would get into this emotional frenzy, she would begin to speak in a language, well, it really wasn't a language, it was a gibberish that nobody had ever heard. It was just a babbling, a gibberish. As a matter of fact, it meant nothing and it said nothing. It was not understandable to anybody. They had some people sitting around her that would take the answers, uh, that what they thought was the answers, they would interpret. Now, can you imagine interpret something that you can't interpret? And they would write out what they thought was being said and would put it on a little slate. During this time, they had to have three of these oracles at the very history, history of this time, right at this particular point. Because the, the, the lure to these idols, the lure to this ecstatic gibberish was such that the, miles sometimes, the line sometimes would be miles long. And these poor people, passive voices used here, they were lured. It's just like they didn't even know what they were doing. They were drawn. They were drawn to this woman or these women trying to get an answer from the divine about problems in their life. They would have a little slate and they would write down on the slate the problems that they were facing at that time. And you can imagine if they did get to be called that day, if their number came up, oh, how happy they were. And they would go in and that woman would speak in this gibberish. And when she was finished, they would bring out an answer to them. And they would walk away and say, oh, man. And they'd look at it and say, huh? They didn't understand it, but oh, somehow they had been in touch with the divine. You say, Wayne, why are you bringing all that up? Well, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. Anybody checked your horoscope lately? Had a guy ask me the other day uh, somewhere. I was on a plane, I think. He said, you're 55? I said, that's right. I'll be 56 in July. And he said, I can't believe you're 50. He said, well, well are you a, I don't even know what he said. It's one of these things. I know somebody said Leo's one of those things. I don't know. He asked me if I was something, and I hadn't figured it out, but it was one of those things that you get into. And I said, uh, I don't know what I am <laughs> other than the fact that I'm a born-again believer. Well, that, 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 that sends to end the conversation real quick. <laughs> or these people calling their psychic hotline. Do you realize right now that that is one of the most lucrative businesses in America? And as we said when we were going through this before, if it's a psychic hotline, why don't they call you? What is the lure? What is it that draws people to want to hear from the divine? What is it that's going on, not only in our century, but was going on in that day? You see, people's in their hearts longing for something, but they don't know what. And this was somehow fulfilling a need that they had. Now, this gibberish, evidently, this experience of speaking in these languages, well, not languages, in this gibberish, had somehow gotten into the church. 
And they were thinking that when they did it, this was much like Pentecost. Because at Pentecost there were languages being spoken and they thought this was of the Holy Spirit of God. Paul is trying to show them it has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit of God. As we enter into chapter 14, the Apostle Paul continues his thought of chapter 13 and loves on his mind. And that love which only comes from a surrendered life. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 14, pursue love. You want to pursue something? Pursue love. Now the word pursue is the word meaning to pursue intensely. It has the idea of a hound dog on the trail of a, a raccoon or something. And you know, you've heard me do it before and I've, I don't think I'll do it this morning. But you know, the voice of that dog changes. You know, the, well, yeah, I'll do it. It starts to, <laughs> you know, if you've, if you've never hunted with a good old coon dog, you just haven't lived. That dog will start off, buddy, and, and boy, it gets on the trail. And boy, when it treats, it just gets getting higher and higher. I can't do it anymore. <coughs> I'm making me want to cough. I'm telling you what, that raccoon hears that hound dog on its trail and it just eats his lunch. He's thinking, oh my gosh, that dog's not giving up. Man, he doubles, he backtracks, he does everything. Runs around tree 14 times. Dog runs around tree 14 times. I mean, that dog's going to catch that thing because there's an intensity in the search, the pursuit, that he's going to find it. Now, that's the word pursuit. As a matter of fact, do you know that's the same word that's translated for persecution? That's exactly the word. Man, I'll tell you what, you seek to live a godly life, Timothy said, you shall be persecuted. Somebody's going to get on your trail. And persecution is going to follow you wherever you go, and you cannot get away from it because light and darkness don't get along with one another. But that's the whole idea. Pursue. Get on the trail, man, and put this as the sights. Put the crosshairs right on this thing right here. Don't put it on a gift. Don't put it on this gibberish. Put this crosshairs on God's love being produced in your life. And we've already seen from chapter 13, the only way to pursue love is to pursue Christ. If I'm not surrendered to Him, I can't pursue love. Because His love is, is what the Holy Spirit of God produces in and through my life. This love can in no way be manufactured by the flesh. So he's just saying the same thing again in a different way. He's, listen, Corinthians, listen to me, listen to me. He's saying, pursue love. Put your focus on God's love, which means you have to put your focus on Christ, the giver. Don't ever put your focus on the gift. Then Paul says, desire earnestly spiritual gifts. Now, hopefully you've got a good translation. You realize the word gifts is in italics. If it's not, then go buy you a translation, would you please? Because that word is not in the original text. That was written in by a translator. I don't know why sometimes people get mad at me for saying those kinds of things, but if you don't know it, the, the English is not what's inspired. It's the Greek text that's inspired, and it's not in the Greek text. So the word spiritual there is the word pneumatika. It comes from the word pneumatikos. It refers to that which pertains to the spiritual, and it's in the plural. Spiritual things. Pursue, desire, spiritual things. It's the same word used in Romans 7, 14 to describe what the law is. Paul says the law is spiritual, exact same word, except in a different, in a different uh, it's, not, it's not plural. All right, he says desire spiritual things. The word desire is zelo, Z-E-L-O-O, transliterated. It's used of a pot about to boil water or boil over. It's a, it's a, it's a pot that's been heated up. And if you've ever been around, Diana has been gone here for a while, and I've learned to do a few things, and uh, a few things, a few things. 
But I have noticed that something, when something starts to boil, something's going to happen. You either cut the heat down or lose what it is that's going to boil because it'll just disappear right out of the pot once it boils long enough. Something's happening. Something's building up. The heat's intensifying. So this is why it's translated earnestly desire because the word itself is, is the word. We get the word zealous from it. That idea, zeal, comes from it. Let spiritual things, not fleshly things, become the consummation of your life. You, you be consumed by spiritual things. What, was, what were the, the Corinthians being consumed by? They were being consumed by fleshly things. And so he's trying to turn their focus. Paul makes certain that the Corinthian believers know that they are to begin by pursuing Christ, which means they're pursuing his love. And when they pursue his love and they pursue and focus on him, then they're going to begin to desire spiritual things. And then Paul says, but especially that you may prophesy. Isn't it funny how people read into their, this word their own definition? The word prophesy comes from two words, to speak forth. That's all it means. So what do we already know that the word prophesy means? We've been in 12 and 13. We know that prophesy, the greater meaning of it, is to tell forth the word of God. Now what is he saying? Above all else, you pursue the spiritual agenda of sharing the word of God to others. The word prophecy again, tell forth the word of God. Now this is the ultimate expression of a person who has been seeking Christ and seeking his love, a person who's been now consumed with spiritual things. This is the major outlet of those spiritual things. This is the major outlet of that love. It's when you can share the word of God with somebody else. And it comes in a progression. It's a beautiful progression. And Paul is saying, hey, if you'll just attach yourself to Christ, if you'll just let his spirit produce that love in you, which is the mark of a surrendered life, your whole mindset will change from that which is of the flesh to that which is of the spirit. And the biggest concern you're going to have, the ultimate concern that you're going to have, is that of sharing the word of God to others. Whether it be your family, whether it be your neighbor, whether it be on a plane, whatever it is, whether it be to, to lead them to Christ, whether it be to help them grow in the word. By the way, this to me is the purest method of evangelism. You can train people to say the plan of salvation in Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. And you can send them out by twos, which is spiritual. But that does not necessarily mean that what they're doing is of God. But you take that same person, instead of training him how to share the plan of salvation, teach him how to walk with God. Teach him how to surrender his heart to Christ. Teach him how to get in love with Jesus. And the love of Jesus in him is going to start seeking the outlets through him. And his mind is going to be consumed with spiritual things and spiritual purposes and spiritual motivation. And he's going to look for people somewhere that he can share the word of God. It's something from the inside out. It's not something from the outside that we train people to do. Now, why would Paul bring up this telling forth the word of God? Why would he bring that up at this particular point, this juncture of 1 Corinthians 12 through 14? Well, look at verse 2, and I think the answer becomes very clear. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. For no one understands but in his spirit he speaks, what? Mysteries. Now there are two things that I want to look at this morning. We're just going to get started and it's going to be a slow process. We'll back up, go forward, back up, go forward. I don't want to leave one rock unturned in this chapter. The first thing he does today is he clearly identifies the problem at Corinth. He clearly identifies the problem. He wastes no time in doing it. 
Look at verse 2 very carefully. For one who speaks, now watch this carefully, in a tongue. That word tongue there is in the, the singular, not the plural. That's a big, huge difference. The word tongue is found in the singular five more times in this chapter. And as you're going to see, it refers to the gibberish that, that had somehow gotten back into the church, which was not a language at all. When you see it in the plural, it refers to known, understandable languages. We have already determined that in our study. But when you see it in the singular, it refers to a tongue that was common only to the Corinthians that they were speaking in, which was not a language at all. This tongue, this gibberish that they were speaking meant nothing to anybody else in the body of Christ. And because of that, it violated the very rule for why God gave the gifts to begin with. Look back in chapter 12 and verse 7. These things have got to be intertwined so that we can understand it. Chapter 12 and verse 7. What is the, the purpose for God's giving the gifts to begin with? And Paul states it very clearly in chapter 12 and verse 7. Matter of fact, in the Greek, it's much more clear than it is in the English. He says in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Now, for what? What's the purpose of God's manifesting Himself through His Spirit in anybody's life? For, he says, the what? The common good. Now, in the Greek, that means toward the profiting, to where everybody benefits, to where everybody somehow receives something from this gift. Not for the individual. It, it's for ministry. Matter of fact, the very word ministry used back up in verse 5 is the word that means it has somebody else on, the, on your mind. It, it's to benefit somebody else. It's not given to benefit us. It's given to benefit others in the body of Christ. Paul told us in verse 3 of chapter 12 that when the Holy Spirit speaks, He always speaks in a language that is understandable. Look at verse 3 of chapter 12. Let's just make sure we've got this in our minds because this was the grid that Paul laid before he ever got into subject. In verse 3 he says, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says. Now it's amazing to me. When you take a language like Greek and you try to put it into English, it becomes the most frustrating thing in the world because there's more words for speak in the Greek than there is in English. We speak. We have one word. He says, but in the Greek you have different words and he uses two of them in this verse. He starts off and says, I make known to you that no one's speaking. If you look at the root meaning of the word speaking, laleo, it can mean speaking. In this context it does. But the root idea of it is simply to make a noise. And it's like Paul is saying, anyone who is speaking or making any kind of noise that's somehow going to be associated with the Holy Spirit of God, look at the next word, says, and the word says is the verb form of logos. It's the word lego, and it means to, to speak intelligently. Anytime you see the word logos or the verb forms of it, it means to speak understandably, to speak intelligently, to speak with integrity. How do we know that? Because in John chapter 1, verse 1, Jesus is the living logos. He, the word was with God. The word was God. And then in verse 14 of John 1, the word became flesh. The living, divine, understandable intelligence of God was made flesh in the Lord Jesus Christ when he was born of a virgin on this earth. And so in a very subtle way, what Paul is saying is if the Holy Spirit of God is influencing something, it will be understandable, it will be intelligent, and it will communicate. The Holy Spirit of God is not into gibberish. Because when God speaks, He wants man to understand. Why would God speak in a language that nobody 
understand. So that's one of the ground rules that we've already seen. So look in verse 13 of chapter 14, when one of the times he uses this in the singular, it's used six times in this chapter. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may, what? Interpret or translate. In other words, if there's not a translation to whatever you're saying, you're in deep trouble. Because if it's God, God's going to speak in some kind of language that's understandable to man. And so he there says, therefore, you better pray that you might interpret. He explains further in verse 14. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Now that word unfruitful is used as a metaphor, a word picture. What is the fruit of somebody speaking? It's somebody understanding what's being said. And he says, when I speak in this kind of a tongue, singular, he says, nobody can understand. Nobody can hear what I'm saying. Look at verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 14. Again, used in the singular. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind, the mind that can, the language that can be understood, that I may instruct others also. Why is the gift given? To instruct others, never to give me an emotional experience, rather than 10,000 words in singular a tongue. What good is it to the body of Christ, which verse 7 of chapter 12 says, if it's a gift of God and it's attached to the Holy Spirit of God, that's what it's given for. What good is it to the body if nobody can understand it? And Paul, in a very loving way, is saying, folks, if you're speaking in this gibberish, what good is it doing anybody other than you having an emotional experience? He said, I would rather speak five words in a language that is understood than 10,000 thousand words in a gibberish that nobody could understand. Then Paul lays the most stringent of boundaries and when we get there it's a quite a hypothetical situation he creates but we're not there yet. Well let me read the verse because it's, it's another time it's used in the singular in four, chapter 14 verse 27. If anyone speaks in a tongue singular it should be by two or, or at the most three and each in turn and let one translate. Now that's going to be an interesting thing because when you have somebody stand up and speak in a gibberish that nobody can understand, Paul just basically shut the whole situation down. Nobody can interpret it if it's a language that cannot be understood. The problem of Corinth was not speaking another language. The problem of Corinth was making noises in an unknown gibberish and that was a benefit to no one else in the body of Christ. In the six times it's used in the chapter, not one time is it used in a good sense. Now going back to, to verse 2 of chapter 1 there in 1 Corinthians, it says, For he that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God. For no man understandeth him, howbeit in the Spirit he speaketh men, men, mysteries. Now again, further proof that this is gibberish. For no one understands him. The word understands there is the word akuo. And some people say, uh-huh, uh-huh, you see there, akuo. That means to hear. No one hears him. This is just a guy in his own private prayer life. No, 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 no. The word akuo is not just to hear. It's a special word used to hear with understanding. Jesus said, do you have ears? Can you hear? He didn't mean can you hear physically. He meant can you hear with understanding that which I am saying. And so what Paul is, is not speaking, he says, you're not speaking to men. I guess you're speaking to God because men can't understand what you're saying. The only assumption Paul could make is that if someone is speaking in this gibberish, it would have to be to God. And then he becomes a basis for his point. It makes no sense to speak to God when, number one, you don't know what you're saying, and number two, God certainly doesn't have a clue what you're saying because it's a language he doesn't even understand. 
It says in verse 2, For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands. But in his spirit he speaks mysteries. Now that little word but there is an important word. It's not but he speaks mysteries. It's indeed he speaks mysteries. And the word for mysteries is the word mysterion. It's, it's something that is not understood. Indeed, Paul says he must be speaking to God for no one else understands because indeed he speaks mysteries, mysteries that cannot be understood. Then he goes on, he says, in his spirit he speaks these mysteries. That's a good translation, by the way, because there's no definite article there and it has the idea of the, of the human being, the human spirit speaking. This is not the Holy Spirit of God, no sir. Matter of fact, if you'll drop down to verse 14 of chapter 14, you'll see that. He says, for if I pray in a tongue, what's the next phrase? The Spirit prays? No, my Spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. My Spirit, not the Spirit. To me, this is the problem of Corinth, and it's now being identified. What's their problem? They've been influenced by a pagan past. They've drug it right into the church. And because you pursue flesh, and because they pursued the flesh, then obviously they distorted it and made it because it was an ecstatic experience to begin with. They thought this must be from God. By implication, those who were doing this just simply from what we know already from verse 1 in chapter 13 were not seeking after God's love. They were not seeking after God's love because if they were seeking after God's love, the desire in their heart would not be to seek something that edified them. The desire in their heart would be to seek something that edified others. So just by implication, this church is upside down. They were not desiring spiritual matters, but were singling out an emotional experience. And what they were doing meant nothing to the brethren in Christ. They spoke in mysteries that they themselves could not even discern. Paul wanted to understand that a man who seeks Christ, his love will be produced. And when his love is produced, he'll seek after spiritual things. And one of those spiritual things will be an outlet through which he can share the Word of God to others in an understandable language so that they can either come to know Christ or can grow in the faith. The man, this, this man that seeks Christ in this love does three things. He edifies others, he exhorts others, and he consoles others, as we'll see coming up in the verse. So the problem of Corinth identified. What's the problem? A tongue. Not tongues, that's languages. A tongue. And that a tongue has got to be tied back to the gibberish that had gone on in their pagan past that somehow had been drugged right back into the church, maybe even to see if it might link into Pentecost, and maybe that was the Pentecostal tongue, whatever was going on. Well, secondly then, once you see the problem identified, you see the solution for Corinth clarified. I mean, it's as clear as a bell. Verse 3, but one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now, if the believers in Corinth would just pursue love, then obviously they would end up edifying others, exhorting others, and consoling others. But instead they were pursuing things of their flesh, which was only edifying them. Now this was a solution to the mass confusion of the church. One who prophesies speaks to men for edification, exhortation, and consolation. Prophesying the outcome of God's love working in your heart, the pursuit of spiritual things. The fruit of this, edification, exhortation, consolation. Let's look at those three words. 
This is what happens. And this is when it begins to benefit the body of Christ. This is when it begins to benefit the body of Christ. If I'm seeking some emotional experience, that's going to become the focus of my life. I may use terminology and say, oh, I'm interested in the rest of the body of Christ, but really I'm not. I'm only interested in my experience and defending my experience. But if I'm seeking after Christ, my whole experience means little. What I want to do is edify the body of Christ. The word edifies is the word that means to build a house. And immediately you begin to see what the word has to say to us. It builds up a man. It edifies a person. Just like God said. Flesh edifies itself. But the spirit edifies others. The spirit has others on the mind. That's the heart of God. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's the focus of God. Now, just like in building a house, you first of all lay a foundation. When you share the Word of God, it may be foundational to someone, and Christ is that foundation, found right in the Word of God. And it may lead that person to know Christ. When you share the Word of God, it'll, you'll build upon that foundation. Now, I'm not talking about preaching from the pulpit, and I'm not talking about teaching a class. I'm just simply saying being so full of the Word of God, you want to share it with somebody else. Everything said is understandable, and it enables others not only to be born again, but also to grow in that faith. So it's going to edify, like it's going to build a house, but also it's going to exhort. You see, the whole basic thrust of the Holy Spirit of God and the whole heart of God is to come alongside us. The word exhortation there, paraklesis, is the same word used for the Holy Spirit of God. Why did Jesus go back to be with the Father and send the, the Holy Spirit of God, the paraclete, the paraklesis here? Why did, he, why did he send him to be in us? Because he came alongside us. He, he wants to encourage in, in our own personal life. He had us on his mind. When Jesus was on the mind, I heard a, on the cross, rather, I heard a song say, I was on his mind. And that's exactly right. He has people on his mind. A person that's seeking after Christ does not have an experience that edifies himself on his heart. He has people around him on his heart. And, and when he shares the word of God, that's going to edify them, that's going to exhort them, that's going to encourage them, that's going to come alongside them, that's going to help them meet the problems in their life head on. Because this person has a care that's divine and it cares about that person. But it also consoles. And a very similar word, paramuthia. Paramuthia means to come alongside, but to instruct. Muthos means to instruct. <laughs> it has the right word at the right time. It's always looking for something that can comfort one another. You can't comfort anybody with a word you don't understand. But you can comfort with words you do understand, and this is the heart of God. And this is the spiritual pursuit that a person's going to have. When you seek God, He puts that love in you for others, and that love's going to seek that outlet, and you're going to want to share with other people. You're going to want to come alongside those that God puts it, puts it beside you, and you're going to want to give a right word at a right time. I love Proverbs 15, 23. A man has joy in an apt answer. And how delightful is a timely word. How delightful is a timely word. And God working in others comes alongside us to do this very thing. Now, look at the contrast in verse 4. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. You see the difference? And I, I'll tell you what, if you disagree with me, you're going to think I'm stretching the word. And all I've got to say to you is, listen, folks, I have never said I'm the absolute. I will never say that. You'd be the Berean. Go check it out for yourself. But I don't see how anybody can miss it. I don't see how anybody can miss this. If God is actually doing something in your life, you are not focused on you. You are focused on somebody else. Jesus did not come to be ministered unto. He came to minister. And that's the heart of God working in us. And whatever we do is for the benefit of somebody else. 
This is what Paul is doing to the Corinthian church. He loves them. He's not sharing just to make them mad. He said, I'm a father trying to speak to you as my children. You need to hear some things. You're going the wrong direction. Pursue love, which means pursue Christ. And then God in you will cause you to pursue others and the edification, exhortation, and consolation of others that are around you. But one who speaks in a tongue, in a gibberish that he doesn't even understand, only edifies himself. And all he can say is, in that particular moment, he was emotionally built up, he was emotionally satisfied. That's all he can say. But if God's working in a person, it's not for his benefit, it's for others' benefit. He says, but one who prophesies edifies the church. The contrast to me is as clear as a bell. A man who pursues Christ edifies the church. A man who pursues his flesh edifies himself. The one who speaks in a gibberish even he does not understand is only seeking some kind of selfish edification. It's like a drug if you're not careful. You say, Wayne, how do you know? Because I've got other things in my life that do the same thing. Flesh is like a drug. It doesn't have to be this. This happens to be the context that we're studying in. So when I make some of these statements, I'm not putting myself up here and putting somebody else down. I have other things sometimes that I pursue of the flesh, and I have found something. It all works the same way. It only edifies me. It's not any good for anybody else. So that immediately tells me it didn't come from God because when God does something, matter of fact, just think about it for a second. Just think about it for a second. In the Lord's Prayer, in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9, what's the way Jesus said to start praying? My Father, is that the way he starts praying? Is that the way we pray? My Father? No, sir. What's the first thing he says? Our Father. You don't pray for your benefit. You pray that God will give you an answer that will only benefit, not only benefit you, but will benefit everybody around you. That's the whole concept of the Christian life. But when we become narrowed to self, Look out, flesh is creeping around somewhere. And, I, and I'm trying to, my wife said, Wayne, please say this with such love that you will not make somebody mad at you. And I don't know what that means. I just don't know what that means. Does that mean to say it nicey-nicey or to say it mushy-mushy or I just love you? I don't know what to say. I just don't want, yeah, say it, just say it. Thank you, Henry. I love Henry. I'm going to take Henry and me where I go. <laughs> hey, I've said some things to my son who's 20. Don't be almost 26 years old and I have said some tough things to him and he didn't like what I said but I said it with tears streaming down my face because I love my son. Now folks, listen to what he's saying. Don't take your experience and cram it into 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Let 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 govern whether or not your experience is what God is satisfied with. And if you'll do that, if you'll do that, God's going to blow the doors off of your life and how he ministers and, and, and gives you an outlet for that love to reach and touch other people. And you, you'll be a part of edifying, exhorting, and consoling the body of Christ. And your mind and your focus will never be on you anymore. It'll be on Christ, which means it's going to be on others. So the problem of Corinth to me is clearly identified, but the solution for Corinth is also clearly clarified. <laughs> and that clarification is, Stop seeking after the flesh and start seeking after love. Seek after Christ. And then he'll give you a mindset for spiritual things, not a spiritual thing because it's in the plural. Not just one. The whole balance of it. And the outlet of that will be to share the Word of God to others. Let me tell you just one of the reasons this is so important to me. 
Years ago, and the clock's going down, so this is my last illustration. 51, 50, 49. See, I know where I am. Just relax, just relax. <laughs> I'm glad there are no clocks in heaven. Years ago, I was in youth work. I've often said jokingly, that was my 40 years with the sheep. Moses thinks he had it bad. I had 15 years with youth. I think that's equal to 40 years with the sheep. You disagree, you go into it for 15 years. You'll be coming out saying, thank God, I'm free at last. When I was working in a church way down south, not South Carolina. This, is not, this wasn't when I was with Haywood. But I was working in a church down in Mississippi. And there was a young man that came that got saved and as a result of what we were doing at that time. Began to get interested in the Word of God. But another thing I noticed about him, he wouldn't study the Word, observation, interpretation, and application. He loved here's a verse, there's a verse, here a verse, everywhere a verse, verse. <laughs> you wouldn't believe some of the things he came up with. And I'm thinking, where did you get that? I mean, you know, a text without a context is a pretext. And so he was always pulling verses out and, and, and coming up with this great word God had spoken to him. Well, I was really alarmed by him because he was more ruled by his emotions than he was his, his head and his heart tied together. He just didn't have his feet on the ground at all. Emotionally, he was absolutely upside down. Well, one Christmas, my concern was confirmed when he came by the house and he had me a gift. And that didn't, that was, that was nice because nobody usually gives me that many gifts. And and it was a shirt, and it fit. Now, that blessed me, because I can't find clothes that fit that well. And I thanked him for it. One of these velour, isn't it funny how far back this was? One of those velour shirts. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Striped, yellow, and pukey green. I mean, that's, I thought it was beautiful at that time. Oh, well, thank God we're out of that stage of life. Somebody says that pukey green is coming back. Not in my house it's not coming back. No. Gave me a shirt and when, when I, he walked back out on the porch and I said, thank you so much for giving me this gift. And he turned, he, he was walking away from me and he turned and you could tell, I mean, this was very sincere to him. And his eyes welled up and big tears began to stream down his face. And I said, what's wrong? He said, Wayne, I, I'm so burdened for you. And I said, why? He said, I just want God to use you. Oh, man, thank you, because I want him to use me too. He says, no, Wayne, if you just had the experience that I have had, God then could put his hand on your life. I said, what experience? And he began to proceed to tell me about something that happened to him, and he spoke in a language he had never heard before, uh, in a tongue. And he said, Wayne, if you could just have this experience, God could really use you. I never, those words hang in my mind. I can remember him saying it. I can remember his face as he said it. Here. This earth. He walked off the porch and I thought to myself, I, I want to take my shirt and throw it away. I mean, I just, I didn't know what to do. Why will this kid not get his head in the Word and stay there? And now look where he is. Well, he left our church because he said it was too dry and unemotional. It's amazing what we have these days, isn't it? It's spiritual if it's loud and it feels good. Well, that's great, isn't it? Take a church away and take all the music away, then what do you have? And if you don't have anything left, then buddy, you better find you a place that you can get your feet on the ground because when you live in, in a Christian life, joy doesn't come before you obey. It only comes as you obey. Well, he left us. and I didn't hear about him for five or six years, and I had moved from place to place. And in youth work, you know, you have to move every two years because you have to repeat your program somewhere. <laughs> I got a phone call. 
Matter of fact, I believe it was when I came here to Chattanooga. I had been here maybe a year to two years as pastor here, and I got a phone call, and I hadn't heard that name. I hadn't heard Bob's name in years. And I get a phone call, and a friend of mine said, Wayne, I just want to tell you some pretty tragic news. And I said, what's that? And he said, Bob was on his way to New Orleans, and a truck pulled out of one of those Mississippi roads, which they do all the time. They never care about who's coming, and had no lights on it. And he hit it head on, and it killed him straight out. And I said, oh, man. And I said, how was he doing? Did he come out of some of that stuff that he was into? He says, Wayne, that's the tragic part of it. The wreck was really God's grace to take him out of here. And I said, what do you mean by that? He said he was on his way to New Orleans to become the director for the New Age movement in the whole New Orleans, South Louisiana area. I thought to myself, you know, you get into this emotional stuff, friend, where do you think it's going to lead you? But if you'll come and pursue Christ, he'll produce a love in you that will make, make you an instrument that can exhort, console, and edify the body of believers until Jesus comes back. And I want to tell you one more time, I love you. I love you if you disagree with me. Somebody told me at the men's conference, they disagreed with me on something. I said, hey, get in line, take a number. If you disagree with me, that's fine. But all I ask you to do is to study the Word of God for yourself and don't fit your, the Word of God into your experience. Fit your experience where it fits in the Word of God. And if it doesn't fit, back off and say, God, uh-oh, and be willing to change. That's all I ask. That's all I ask. Won't be but a few more months and I'm out of here. Just remember I said it. Be careful. You pursue Christ. Don't you ever pursue a gift. Don't you ever pursue an experience. If you do, you'll be upside down until Jesus comes back. Oh, you'll get there. You'll get there. His love never fails. But how many people are you going to take with you? For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org. 